Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman Podcast brought to you by Cameron Hughes Wine. There's a little secret that most people don't know about the highest quality wineries in the United States and how they work. They'll say, you know, as they start their year, okay, we're going to bottle say 5,000 bottles of wine this year. And so they overproduce for that, produce enough for maybe 6,000 bottles of wine. But, you know, they've, they've sold 5,000, they're ready to get 5,000 out. And so that's basically all they do under their own label. And then when they're done, they've got casks of wine left over that haven't been bottled. Cameron Hughes contracts with some of the very best vineyards in America to take that essentially surplus wine I mean, you know, it's the exact same wine you would buy in a bottle for 50, 60, 100. Uh, one of the Cameron Hughes wines I had last week, the retail price, if you knew who the brand was, was over $150 a bottle. Cameron Hughes buys that in bulk, bottles it, puts just a simple number. Here it is, lot 506 or lot 622. Simple number on it, and you get some of the most spectacular wines at huge discounts off what you would normally pay. Cameron Hughes has been doing this since 2001, seeking out high-end wine from around the world and selling it online direct to his customers. This is not just American wines. Earning Cameron Hughes Wine the number one wine brand online. It's just extraordinary stuff. Uh, I recently sampled Lot 609. This is a Cabernet Sauvignon. It was insane. It was so good. It was bold. It was rich. It had the, the black fruit and red licorice and crushed red rock. All these, these extraordinary tastes, juicy and ripe on the palate. You got to check this out. Go to chwine.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. C-H as in Cameron Hughes. That's his name. He, the guy who started the company and runs it. I've talked with him. He's a great guy and he's doing amazing stuff. chwine.com slash T-H-O-M. Or text the word wine, W-I-N-E. Text the word wine to 511511 and you'll get free shipping with your minimum three bottle order. So text wine to 511511. Cameron Hughes Wine. Exceptional value. Extraordinary wine. Now enjoy the podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. And uh, today, this, at this very moment, Congressman Mark Pocan is with us. It's going to be our midday, uh, Middays with Mark Tuesday edition. Uh, he is, uh, uh, I think he's in Wisconsin right now. He's also the co-chair, or excuse, uh, yeah, the, uh, the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He represents Wisconsin's 2nd District. His website, pocan.house.gov. His uh, Twitter handle, repmarkpocan. And he will be taking your calls at 202-808-9925 for the hour. Congressman, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. Glad to be here. Great to have you with us. Um, I understand that uh, your state, uh, Wisconsin, is uh, in the crosshairs of uh, Donald Trump's uh, rants, specifically Harley Davidson. Uh, tell me about this. Yeah, you know, I, I, we've talked about before. You know, Donald Trump's trade policies are uh, erratic at best. Um, you know, I'm not against the use of targeted tariffs, although generally you use them against countries that are violating the rules, not the ones that follow the rules, like Canada and in the European Union. But, uh, you know, because of his erratic use of tariffs and not having a coherent 
policy about trade, you know, now uh, Harley-Davidson is saying that they're going to start producing some motorcycles overseas to respond to counter-tariffs. And, you know, what's so ironic is the president's acting like, you know, he's been, uh, got a jilted lover uh, in Harley that they're going to try to produce something overseas, and he's threatening them. And yet, I think it's so ironic, almost everything Donald Trump produces is overseas. Uh, and, you know, he's such a hypocrite, which we don't need to say because that's just a daily occurrence. But in this particular case, uh, just watching him rant and rave and pontificate when he himself doesn't do a single thing, uh, it really stands out. But, you know, we're hearing a lot of industries. We also have the cheese industry in Wisconsin that are going to be affected across other states. Because we're busy fighting with our friends, uh, rather than dealing with China, uh, we've got a lot of uh, things that we're going to have to untangle. Very, very interesting. And uh, ICE, you, you uh, either uh, created, co-sponsored, or proposed legislation to either break up ICE or end ICE. Uh, you want to give us the details on that and how that is going? Yeah, so, you know, this has uh, gotten a lot of attention because, you know, in some ways it's a semantical uh, debate, too. We've said we want to abolish ICE. I mean, the president's misusing the agency to be his own personal police force, a deportation force to try to drive up numbers to justify a wall. Uh, they're not able to do their original focus. They were created after 9-11 to go after domestic terrorism, human trafficking, drugs, gangs, and major crimes. And instead, uh, they can't even get confidences anymore in those communities because you see an ice jacket and you run. So we're saying you got to break it up, uh, go back to some of those essential functions to other agencies, and then get rid of all this drift that's happened. Uh, quite honestly, other, other presidents as well, but nothing like under Donald Trump. And, uh, you know, we're, we're having some people say, well, we just want to reform it. Well, bottom line is uh, their functions, I think the majority of people uh, see them now as just as a deportation force. And, uh, Tom, you know, they sit in the parking lot at the Head Start program in one community in my district to intimidate people. Uh, that's not going after domestic terrorism. They're going after people with parking tickets. They're going after that doctor uh, in Michigan who'd been here for 38 years, came at five, and going after uh, infractions he had as a teenager. I mean, none of these... Uh, are making sense, and that's why we're saying it's time to start over, break it up, uh, take some of the essential functions which they have and give them to other agencies, but uh, it's it's gone so astray that it can't do its function anymore. And it's not just me, Tom. 19 agents actually wrote a letter to the same effect last week. And it's 19 out of the top 23, as I recall. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're seeing the mission shift. That, uh, yeah, it's in, majority of the mission shift. It's the entire agency shift because of this president, because of his white whale, which is the wall, uh, that he is going to do everything he can to try to fight for it. Although, Tom, I would also argue when uh, Chuck Schumer offered up money, which I wasn't happy about for the wall, he didn't take yes for an answer. I think part of this is he wants to keep the issue alive, so every time he does a rally, his uh, more racist uh, portion of his fans that love to hear him talk about the, the wall and give him uh, all kinds of cheers and support, I, I think I'd... Uh, you know, a narcissist like uh, our president uh, loves that, and I think that may even be a bigger factor than uh, the actual wall itself. Yeah, remarkable. Our lines are full, so let's uh, pick up some phone calls here. I have a few other questions, but uh, they, they will hold in advance. Laura in Chicago, listening to WCPT. You're on the air with Congressman Mark Pocan. Hi, Tom. So you know what I'm going to be asking, Representative Pocan, and that is, um, well, Representative Pocan, there's been a, a constitutional lawyer's out there talking in the, on the internet about how the Senate Dems can avoid a vote on the Supreme Court, uh, Trump's Supreme Court pick, and that is for them to leave town and not provide a quorum, so that they so no votes can be taken at all in the Senate. And I'm just wondering if anybody is talking about that in Congress. Have you heard any of your colleagues talking about it, or the other uh, the Democratic senators? Is this getting traction at all? Um, Lauren, I, I haven't heard this in particular. I think people are very clear in the grassroots in our communities that they want the Senate to fight and fight like hell to make sure that uh, we're not just letting him put uh, some conservative justice up uh, that's going to change this country, uh, especially after what they did to Barack Obama. The one thing I can tell you, Lauren, is we had that happen in Wisconsin during Act 10, the Scott Walker's attempt to break up public unions, and our senators left and actually went to your state, to Illinois, and to be real honest, there was quite a price to be paid for that because people thought that at least you should still be fighting and doing your job there, not running. So I, I hope the Senate finds every possible way to try to uh, do what they can to block uh, an appointment if it's a bad appointment. But I'm not sure if leaving town will play in the big picture because I saw it very up 
front and close uh, here in Wisconsin during the Act 10 fight. It also won't work legally, unfortunately. Um, this was proposed in, by an article in Vox day before yesterday, and they pointed out that the Constitution requires a simple majority, but an actual one-vote majority in the Senate to, to, to have an actual quorum. So you'd have to have 51 senators present for there to be a quorum. And without John McCain, there'll only be 50 Republicans. So the theory was, if all the Democrats leave, then there's no quorum and, the, and it can't happen. But the problem is that in the Senate rules, a quorum is always assumed unless a senator specifically calls for a roll call to define the lack of a quorum, which means that one Democrat would have to stay in town to call for that, to make that call. And that one Democrat would then constitute the 51st vote, which would establish the quorum, even, you know, and so it would backfire. So right. that strategy doesn't even work, unfortunately. You know, and I, we had a conversation about this on the air yesterday. So, uh, I do you think know. people do see it also just as, you know, they, they still want you to be there and to, to mm -hmm. fight. Yeah, if absolutely. If you just don't show up, yeah. it, it hurt us in Wisconsin. Yeah, that's an important point. John in Columbus, Ohio. Hey, John, you're on the air with Congressman Mark Pocan. Hey, Tom, uh, thank you very much for your program. Uh, really love you to death. Thank you. Um, listen, um, I'm an immigration attorney, and uh, while I think we are all quite right, quite correct, to be outraged and demanding a change to the family separation, I think that was a red herring that the administration dragged across our path so that we would not notice or would not object to major changes in the asylum law from a case, it's not really a case, it's just an opinion from uh, Beauregard called Matter of A.B., and uh, that that is going to affect many, many thousands of asylum applicants. This is where uh, asylum applicants can no longer ask for asylum because they are being threatened either by a violent spouse or by a violent gang. It has to actually be, they have to actually prove that it's their own government that's after them. Do I have that right? Essentially, it, yeah. it's, uh, the, the government can't help them. Right. But, yes, absolutely. And, and I'll, you know, we do uh, asylum cases. Obviously, I'm not in a border state, or I guess I am in a border state with Lake Erie, but uh, uh, most of our asylum cases are defensive. That means the mm -hmm. people are already in removal proceedings. And, you know, we really only have one or two that are going to... to have any avenue of relief after this matter of AB? So your question for Congressman Pocan? Well, my my question is: Do you do you think that we have all been distracted by the bright, shiny uh, 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 family separation debate and, and have lost sight of the of the greater damage that's being done? Not just matter of AB. There's another one, not on asylum, called matter of Castro Tomb, which it has a lot of people who are um, already approved in the first step of their process to immigrate, now they're going to have to go back and defend removal proceedings, which used to be something that they could close and finish their adjustment process. Congressman? Yeah, John, so I look at it slightly different um, in that I think had it not been for the family separation issue, because even um, people I know who are conservatives uh, who oppose separating kids from their parents, no one would have paid attention to the issue really much at all. Uh, especially when you get to asylum case law, because also there was a, a court decision, again, on these mass uh, asylums where they're just denying people in large groups rather than looking at them individually, right? So there is a lot around asylum, but this points to the very problem. The reason they have the people to arrest in the first place is they're making it almost impossible to get asylum. I was at the Hidalgo Bridge, and, you know, they're not even really letting people in at a legal point of entry to claim asylum, so you either go back into Mexico and get kidnapped by a cartel, take that risk, and then have uh, yourself extorted to family members in the U.S., or you cross illegally because you still are fleeing the violence from the country you came at, and uh, at that point you enter Trump's system. So I actually think the family separation really made it so that a lot of people who don't follow the border and follow uh, issues of immigration are following it. Now it's our job to show how he's changing how we've always done asylum and uh, point out all these issues because, again, I think fair-minded people would think if you really are uh, fleeing violence, you should have at least your say in, in the U.S. system. Congressman Mark Pocan with us, Middays with Mark, Tuesday edition. We'll be back in just a moment. This is the Tom Hartman Program. For Congressman Pocan, right after this, you can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan.
Welcome back. It's Middays with Mark. Congressman Mark Pocan taking your calls here on the Tom Hartman program, Tuesday edition. And uh, Tawny in uh, New York City, in, in New York, anyway. Uh, Tawny, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yeah, I, I just wanted to ask why sir, the right is able to pack our Supreme Court with all right wing uh, opinions. The FBI, they don't want them having any opinions. They're supposed to operate without being biased. Why isn't the Supreme Court held to the same standard? Well, Tony, uh, great question. It should be. The problem is it's where they're taking their pick. So as Tom mentioned before, a couple of the major people that are being looked at, the fact that they belong to groups that have uh, adamantly fought against birth control and abortion rights uh, tells you a lot about that justice, and that's again could be the problem they're going to have. You know, let's face it. Barack Obama appointed Merrick uh, Merrick Garland, a Republican, to the court because he knew that there was a divided government he wanted to happen, and they held it up. And then here they are uh, with these outrageous uh, picks that are very uh, extreme, and uh, that's where the fight has to happen because of how they're trying to abuse the system. But I think we're getting used to Donald Trump abusing the system. Yeah, it seems. Freddie in Oaklawn, Illinois, you're on the air with Congressman Bokin. Uh, hi, Congressman. Yeah, um, my, um, I'm, I'm Hispanic, I'm Mexican-American, I'm retired. Um, and I, I have a question about the contributions. I have just heard this gentleman talking about the small contributions. Since I've been retired, I've been more political, but uh, I can't get out there in March because i got a, like, a heart problem, things like that. But I do make contributions, and I make like these real small contributions, like to somebody like Randy Bryce and and Beto in Texas. Now, can you tell me if if you know my little contributions, like seven dollars or eight dollars, do they really see uh, some of that money? Because I know Act Blue and Move On, they take their little part, but does it really help? I, absolutely. In fact. It helps in multiple ways. One, you have to fund a campaign, right, uh, whether it's to have people helping to get the word out through the grassroots or, you know, some of the advertising they do. It's essential for that. But more important, it's sending a message that the Democratic Party doesn't have to go to pharmaceutical companies and insurance companies and other big corporations to get their special interest money in order to fund campaigns. If we can fund campaigns on your $7 contributions and your neighbor's and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands and maybe millions of people doing that, then we, don't, we can take back that grip that the special interests have on the political system. So what you're doing is the most democratic thing you could possibly do, um, and it really does help. And, um, you know, the other thing you could also do uh, is, uh, thanks to groups like Indivisible, you can make phone calls from your home if you're not able to do things, and you can make calls into Randy Bryce's district or into Beto's uh, state into Texas. So uh, something else you can do to help. It's that grassroots power that's going to supersede their advantage with money. Pat in LaPorte, Indiana, you are on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hello, Congressman. Um, I would like to speak with you quickly about gun control. It seems to me that we need some legislation that would treat guns just like we do automobiles. In other words, public liability and property damage. Um, if gun owners were required to register their weapons, that would be great. But I think they also need to have insurance so that when damage is done by that weapon, the victim has a recourse. Yeah, Pat, I, mean, I think you bring up um, some great points. And, you know, we've been unable to have a meaningful conversation about guns, the gun portion of gun violence in this country, uh, because of the NRA. For too long, the NRA, if they said jump, uh, politicians... Uh, mostly Republicans, but a few Democrats would uh, say, okay, how high, which direction, how fast, and they really called the shots. The Parkland uh, situation, I think, has been a, a catalyst in changing that. Uh, it is now that the NRA can be a negative against people because they're realizing the NRA is not about people. It's about uh, gun manufacturers who just want to sell more guns and don't care about any laws as long as they can sell more guns. Uh, but what you're bringing up are key issues that we have to be able to have a conversation with. So I am hopeful that we're at a point now where the NRA has less influence than it has had previously, and we can have these conversations. But many of the issues that uh, you're talking about and other gun issues are at 85-plus percent support in the public. Uh, that should be a no-brainer to get those done. But so far we've been fighting the, the special interest influence of the NRA, but we may finally be at a point we can turn that back. Elizabeth in Lowell, Massachusetts. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hello? 
Hi, quick question, please. We only have two minutes till the end of the hour. Yes, I want to ask the congressman. I have been a regular donor, be it a small donor, to the Democratic Party. And I live in Massachusetts, a pretty progressive state. I have heard nothing from Elizabeth Warren, nothing from Nikki Songus, nothing from Democrats about the lack of the fourth estate doing its job. Heard nothing. If you can't afford to subscribe to the New York Times, nobody knows what was done to get Kennedy to step down from the Supreme Court unless they read the New York Times. Yeah, that was an amazing article, wasn't it? Yes. So your question, Elizabeth? Uh, why aren't we railing about the fourth estate not doing its job, and why are congressmen getting paid to not do their jobs, not read the bills? They'll Thank say, oh, I haven't Thank read Thank that you, bill. What have you been doing? Thank you. It Congressman? Yeah, Elizabeth, so I, I think to your first point, you know, this is uh, a common refrain I have is that I know there are plenty of people, including people like Elizabeth Warren, who are uh, talking about the attacks on the press and how uh, what's, you know, this whole idea of um, alternative facts and fake news is done to make people not pay attention to what's really happening. The problem is the corporate media has to pick it up or you'll never hear about it. Now, luckily, you know, Tom's program and many other uh, types of programs like this and in social media, we're able to still get that message out. But the real problem we face over and over is that corporate media in the 22 minutes they have during the news in order to sell detergent uh, don't pick up on these things. So uh, rest assured, Elizabeth, there are people talking about why it's so important to protect uh, you know, journalists and, and news. Uh, I'm a journalism major myself, uh, very important to me. It's just sometimes it's hard to hear that because people aren't covering uh, what we're saying. Congressman, thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, absolutely, Tom. Thank you. I really happy appreciate 4th, it. Everyone. Yeah, have a happy 4th of July. Uh, I hope you have a wonderful day tomorrow. We'll be back. Uh, we're going to talk about judicial review in the Supreme Court right after this. Hey, do you brush with an electric toothbrush or have you wanted to? If you're using one of the one of the older, bigger, bulkier, you know, and some of them you know, are so aggressive they can even damage your mouth, uh, tooth, electric toothbrushes, uh, or if you've never used an electric toothbrush, I want you to pay attention. There's a new electric toothbrush. Time Magazine called it the invention of the year, right? Uh, it's called Quip, Q-U-I-P. It's slim, it's lightweight, it's about the size of a regular toothbrush. It's got a, you know, a little AAA battery inside that powers it and powers it for months at a time uh, be, between changes. And it, it does a really great job. It aggressively cleans your teeth, but it does so in a way that's good for your gums and good for your teeth. It's a, the perfect two-minute clean. So check this thing out. And it's great for traveling. It comes with a little tube that you can drop it in to travel because, like I said, it's about the size of a regular toothbrush, much, much smaller than your, than your big electric toothbrushes. And you can find out all about it at getquip.com slash Tom. That's G-E-T, getquip, Q-U-I-P, dot com slash T-H-O-M. Getquip.com slash Tom for more information. It's only 25 bucks, and they send you the refills, the, the brush heads that you're supposed to replace every three months. Every three months, they'll send those to you for only $5 free shipping. It's an amazing deal. Getquip.com slash Tom. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. On the line with us is uh, Professor Mark Tushnet. Uh, he is the William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Law at the Harvard Law School, author of numerous books, including Taking the Constitution Away from the Courts, uh, his uh, Harvard, hls.harvard.edu is his website, and uh, you can tweet Harvard underscore law. Professor, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. I, 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 have, I, I wrote a book back in 2000, uh, Unequal Protection, about the, the history and the, the arc of the history of corporate personhood and the, the Santa Clara decision and all that kind of stuff. And, and a chapter of it was about you know, Jefferson's reaction to, uh, to his uh, second cousin, um, uh, oh, geez, uh, John Marshall's. Uh, decision in, in 1803 in Marbury, you know, and this whole idea of judicial review that the Supreme Court can strike down laws. Can, can you give us a, a, a quick summary of what 
what the policy of, uh, or the theory or whatever you call it of judicial review is and, and how it, and your thoughts on it. Let's start with that at that point. So the, the basic theory is that the Constitution sets out particular provisions that define the boundaries between the branches and limits on government power. Uh, and we need to have some mechanism to ensure that those boundaries and limits are respected. Uh, judicial review is said to be the mechanism that we have to ensure compliance with what the Constitution says uh, government should be able to do and what it what it can't do. And but and yet in Federalist seventy eight, when when Hamilton was trying to sell the new Constitution, he quotes people saying. Well, you know, if, if this Supreme Court happens the way you're defining it, they could ultimately, you know, strike down laws and become like, you know, petty kings, petty tyrants. And then Hamilton goes on to say, no, they will be the least likely to offend. They have the least power. They have neither the power of the purse nor the power of the law, all that kind of stuff. Um, this, did this actually start in 1803 with the Marbury decision? And, and, and uh, I, my understanding is it was only used a few times in the 19th century in, in uh, Dred Scott, for example. Um, how has this evolved, the, the right of the Supreme Court to actually strike down laws made by Congress and signed by the president? Um, so both parts of the uh, early history story are quite complicated. Uh, there was a pretty well-established tradition of what we came to understand to be judicial review uh, before 1803, and there was a fairly robust practice of saying, uh, the court saying, this statute would be unconstitutional if we interpreted it in a particular way, and so we will interpret it to make it constitutional. Um, over time, uh, particularly starting in the late 19th century and through the 20th century, um, the courts became more uh, active in asserting the power to strike legislation down, uh, and after... Um, a period in the 1930s when the court's practice came under quite severe political criticism. Um, uh, the court changed its approach, still being rather active, but now in the service of uh, more, call it, progressive goals. Um, and um, liberals and progressives came to see the court as... Um, an institution that was basically on their side. Uh, that uh, behavior by the court changed in, let's say, around 1970-ish, uh, and the court's political tilt began to change. But by then, the idea of judicial review and its value had uh, been built up pretty substantially among the American people, and liberals and progressives still continued to hope that the court might, um, at least on occasion, uh, rule in their favor. Um, and, and as cases like Roe and the gay marriage case indicate, that belief was not entirely false, uh, but if you look at the court's record, again, roughly for the past 50 years, uh, 50 years, yeah, uh, 40 years, let's say, um, you see the court uh, as increasingly... Uh, exercising the power of judicial review to disadvantage progressives and empower uh, conservatives. Yeah, uh, rather significantly. Uh, Phyllis Schlafly uh, used to be a, 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 a regular guest on our program before she died. And I'm a, you know, democratic socialist liberal, and she's a hardcore right-wing conservative. And um, but but we agreed on this this idea that when the court engages in basically legislation in creating law. In, 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 uh, in uh, not just saying yes or no to a law, but in, in the case of Roe v. Wade, for example, or in the case of Dred Scott, um, uh, you know, just coming out and saying, okay, you know, we're going to define these three trimesters of pregnancy, et cetera, et cetera, that basically they short-circuited a, a, a political process and, and thereby created a movement that might not have happened if we had gone through a political process, which I think the country was pregnant with in the 70s anyway. I, I certainly remember that era. Um, your thoughts on that, and, and on and on the courts, you know, the the, the courts, uh, whether it's appropriate or even legal for the court to essentially create law. Uh, the story is about the relationship between the court and 
political mobilization are always quite complicated. Um, the, the, the court helped uh, mobilization of African Americans in the 1950s uh, through decisions striking legislation down. Uh, it contributed to the mobilization of conservatives uh, after that uh, with Rowan Wade and decisions, again, about uh, desegregation. Um, uh, so there's no direct relationship between the courts taking an active role in striking legislation down and enabling or disabling political mobilizations. Having said that, sort of the overall picture over the last century or so is uh, of an increasing sort of rate of displacement of policymaking from the political practice into the courts. Um, not everything. Of course, tax policy is, is made by legislatures and so on. Uh, but there's a lot more uh, policy in which the courts are centrally implicated now than there used to be. Let's talk about court stripping for a second. The, the Article 3, Section 2 of the Constitution says, uh, again, Hamilton quoting it in Federalist 78 or 81, um, it says that the court shall operate under such exceptions and regulations as Congress shall stipulate. Um, I, I, Phyllis Schlafly again told me the story that one of Tom Daschle's farm bills, uh, he was concerned that it was going to be attacked by the court, and they inserted a sentence into it. Uh, this is back when Tom Daschle was running the Senate uh, 25 years ago, 30 years ago. Um, that said, this legislation is not subject to review by the Supreme Court. Um, and thus creating that exception. Um, is that uh, a, a viable policy? Has it been done frequently in history? Is that something that, uh, you know, uh, legislators, you know, for example, if, if uh, Democrats were to take over uh, the, the other two branches of government, might they be able to in, insert court stripping language into legislation in order to avoid judicial review? Um, the first, uh, the, the practice is has been extremely rare in U.S. history. Um, there may be a handful of examples, most of which can be explained away as not really taking uh, power away, ultimate power away from the courts. So there's something of a, I call it a tradition or a convention, that you don't use that the acceptance clause to um, keep particular substantive issues away from the, the courts. Um, it hasn't happened very often. Um, notably, if it were to be used, it would basically protect enacted legislation against invalidation. But if you think that, for example, state um, legislatures are enacting unconstitutional legislation, uh, you want the court to be able to intervene. And so the exceptions clause has limited value um, in, in overall. Wouldn't that, though, just uh, toss it to the people? I mean, the question that was, and, and we just have a minute and a half here until we're going to hit a hard brick, I'm sorry. But the question that was put to Jefferson after his rant in 1803 was, well, if the Supreme Court isn't the final arbiter of what's constitutional, who is? And Jefferson's response was the people themselves. They, they will realize over time if legislation has been passed that's blatantly unconstitutional, and they will elect representatives who will correct it. Uh, yes, and I agree with that position. That's, you quoted the title of my book, Taking the Constitution Away from the Courts, and the argument there was we should take it away from the courts so that the people could um, be responsible How? for enforcing the Constitution. How? Very quickly. Uh, through political mobilization, electing people uh, who support their views of the Constitution, defeating people who take uh, positions that they think are unconstitutional, just through ordinary politics, dealing, though, with the Constitution rather than mere policy. So, uh, in other words, you, hopefully legislators would be passing legislation that would be less likely to be struck down via the process of judicial review. Right, right, that's right. Yeah. Okay, well, it seems like a starting point <laughs> and probably a pretty good one. Uh, professor Mark Tushnet is the uh, William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Law at Harvard Law School, uh, and his uh, most recent book is Taking the Constitution Away from the Courts. 
Professor, thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, thank you for having me. It's, it's been a pleasure talking with you and, and, and fascinating. It's a topic that I, I'm, I'm greatly interested in. Thank you so much. We'll be back with more of the news of the day and your calls right after this. Stick around. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. On the line with us is George Monbiot. He is the uh, uh, journalist and contributor to The Guardian, the author of numerous books, including his latest, Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis. Monbiot, M-O-N-B-I-O-T dot com is his website, and you can tweet him at George Monbiot. George, welcome back to the program. It's been quite some time since you've been on. Thanks, Tom. It's great to talk to you again. Uh, you're, I, I love your book, Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis. The, uh, in fact, we did a, a book report on it this morning, so the, the book report that plays for our nonprofit stations during the, the commercial break, the first six minutes of the show, uh, when uh, most stations are playing news and whatnot, uh, it, will, it will appear. In fact, it did today. Right. And, uh, and, and the chapter that I, I read, or I started out with, was uh, chapter number seven, Our Economy. And you talk about how, I, I, at least I believe it was that chapter, you talk about how Basically, um, you know, Keynesianism has has died, essentially, you know, the, the, the thousand paper cuts sort of death. And and what what do you see emerging as a replacement for Keynesianism that people on, quote, the left could advocate as an economic mm -hmm. policy? Well, I, I would like to see the emergence of what I call the politics of belonging, where we um, build community as our primary political building block um, by developing far more robust, generous, inclusive communities, but then by transferring real political and economic power to those communities. And I see a sort of escalating um, a, a series of steps towards doing that. Um, first of all, you can look at the sort of thing they're doing in Reykjavik, the capital of Iceland, um, where a remarkable citizens' empowerment has taken place, mixing representative democracy with participatory democracy. And there you've got a situation where any um, citizen of the city can put forward a proposal for improving the city and everybody else can then vote on that. It then goes to the council, which either has to accept it or provide a very good reason for rejecting it. And, and those very good reasons, those sort of reasoned arguments have greatly encouraged faith in democracy there. And we now see an extraordinary situation where two-thirds of the city, are, are, um, are, have been involved in this process. It's just wow. uh, this government's been handed over to the people. And then step two is doing a similar thing with economic decision-making, with um, participatory budgeting, where you basically recruit as many citizens as want to be involved in setting the budget for the city, and I hope one day for nations as well. The classic example is where it all kicked off in Porto Alegre, where 50,000 people every year now set the city's budget. And it's been remarkable in that it's created a far more um, um, well-distributed um, pool of wealth, um, much better sanitation, much better water quality, better primary health care, better primary schooling, better nursery places, uh, just right across the board. It's it got rid of corruption and clientelism. It's got rid of the mafia. It's had a transformative effect on the city. In a way, you're, it, it seems that you're describing something that harkens back to the Greek idea of the polis, that, that uh, you know, where, where you had to have 6,000 people to, to have a quorum and all that sort of stuff, that, that Aristotle and Plato decried. Um, is, how, how would that, A, what do you think about that? And B, how would you do something like that in, for example, the United States? Yes. Well, the thing is that I think there's loads of scope, especially now with digital technologies, to um, start to scale up such experiments so that they involve more and more people. Uh, you know, when the Porto Alegre budgeting situation kicked off, people said, well, you're trying to involve far too many people. You can't possibly set a budget um, through uh, all the citizens of, of, of the city. It's just going to be chaotic. But using digital technologies... Um, using um, a very clever structure for meetings and devolution of power from one unit to another, they were able to do this with fantastic results. Uh, we see in um, uh, the experiment taken even, fur even further in Rojava, the um, 
um, Syrian part of Kurdistan, where they're trying to build an entire political system from the small community level up. And there's no inherent reason why you can't build your politics to almost any scale by those means, especially once you start devolving genuine power to communities. And so I'd like to take it even further than those examples suggest and start looking at a transfer of power, not just from the state to people, to communities, but also from the very concentrated private oligarchy to communities. So, for instance, um, transferring real economic wealth from the hands of, of those who have enriched themselves massively at the expense of society into community land trusts enabling um, people, communities to buy land and to sort out their own pressing problems, such as the lack of social housing, the lack of public amenities, by those methods. And so what I would do would be to introduce a very high rate of land value taxation on the most valuable urban real estate um, to break the upward spiral of, of capital accumulation, which so drains society of its wealth and, and enriches a tiny handful of billionaires, then um, to use some of the money generated by that land value taxation to provide community land trusts with capital, give them also a, a right to buy, um, a community right to buy, so that when land comes up for sale, um, they have first refusal. And then, um, having done that, um, um, provide um, the opportunity for them to develop their own sites and solve their own problems. That's remarkable. Um, <laughs> that, that truly is remarkable. Another chapter of your book that I read uh, starts out with the, the idea that the environment is you know, considered just an externality by economists and, and politicians by and large. And you know, there was a time perhaps when you could create an economic model and a political model that, that considered the environment in that context. There were so few people and there was so much environment that time has long passed, uh, some would say centuries ago, uh, certainly, you know, uh, half a century ago. And uh, now, how do, we, how do we create an economy and, and forms of governance that don't end up destroying the planet, you know, our, our own, our, you know, fouling our own nest, ruining our own ability to, to have, you know, a civilization or even just, a, you know, decent lives? Well, uh, so there's a number of steps. And the first one, I believe that by shifting a considerable amount of wealth and economic power out of the private sector and into the commons sector, the community sector, you inherently are um, shifting from a primarily unsustainable system into a far more sustainable one. Because a true commons has a number of elements. First of all, there's a resource. Secondly, there's a particular community which manages that resource, and there's the rules and negotiations that the community creates to do so. But critically, that resource is inalienable. If it is a commons, it cannot be sold, it cannot be given away. And any products from that resource are shared on an equal basis. And what this means is that every member of the community has a very strong incentive to ensure that that resource is sustained. And by a resource, we could be talking about a river, we could be talking about a forest, a piece of land, um, a fishery. There's, there's a whole series of things. And then, of course, um, human-made wealth as well could be used as a resource for a commons. But the, the important thing is that you can't just dispose of it and turn it into cash or into another form of capital. You can't um, sell off the um, soil by just basically mining it through unsustainable agriculture well, he, and then invest in a factory. Here in the U.S., That's I mean, that was Teddy park. Roosevelt's idea, you know, setting up the national park system. But now we've got Ryan Zinke. He's just, he's just sold off several, I think, millions of acres of public land to the, you know, the highest bidder, to drillers, to miners, to ranchers and whatnot, yeah. and fixing to do it with a whole lot more. I mean, they just cut down bear's ears and That's all these right. other things. So, uh, you know, th th there's that old saying, you know, power once, once uh, taken is never ceded. I mean, how do, we, how do we actually accomplish something like this? Well, what you're talking about there are particular weaknesses of the state system, of state ownership. And while I think we still need a strong state, um, we also need a lot of devolution of power and wealth from the state to community groups so hmm. that you don't end up with split incentives. Um, you know, where, where you've got a system um, where the state and, and the state alone can make a decision, well, 
All you need is for a lobby group to move in and capture the decision-making process, and hey, presto, it's all gone. And those who have an interest in the long-term maintenance of the resource, their voices are muted, whereas the voices of the corporate lobbyists, the landowners, and the rest of it, those are very strong. But even, even, even at the level of practical interactive democracy, this, I, I've seen this break down. I mean, here in Oregon, there was, uh, this was more than a decade ago, there was a, uh, uh, an attempt by the legislature to regulate the, the, the timber industry. And as I recall, they just simply put a ballot initiative on the, on the ballot and ran you know, millions of dollars worth of highly deceptive advertising to get this thing knocked down. Yeah, well, well, this, of course, is a hazard anywhere. And look, I'm not claiming that um, um, handing it over to participatory democracy is a cure for all ills. Right. Apart from anything else, we have to curb the power of lobbyists and of campaign spending. And I know that in the U.S. you've got this particular problem, which is Citizens United. Right. Um, and, and it's very clear to me that you know, the, a sustained effort of the kind that Wolfpack and others have made to try to overturn Citizens United is absolutely essential for the political health of your nation. It's a crazy situation where you can just buy political results. And while that remains the case, almost any political transformation can be co-opted and corrupted. Yeah, and uh, all the more the tragedy. It's just this is a very, very unhealthy situation for our democracy yeah. and for our planet. George Monbiot, you're brilliant. The new book is Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis. Thank you so much for dropping by today. Thank you, Tom. Total pleasure. Great talking with you. And you can follow George's work uh, also over at theguardian.com. But the book is Out of the Wreckage, and it's, it's great. We'll be back in just a moment with the more of the news of the day and your calls right after this. You know, in the world of work, one of the most important things is one of the things that people probably think the least about until they have to sit in it, which is their chair. And the X chair is absolutely extraordinary. This is the new high tech. In fact, they've got a brand new version. It's called the X3, the newest version of the X chair. It is comfortable. It is high tech. And yes, I'll say it. It is sexy. This chair is extraordinary and it will dramatically, consequentially improve your concentration and productivity because it's going to help your posture. And, you know, if you're not in pain and, you're, and your blood is working, you know, flowing well, your brain is going to work well. The new X3 is quite simply the most modern, ergonomic, high-tech, comfortable office chair in the world, period. The X3's unique ATR fabric makes it feel like you're literally floating on air. And its patented split-back lumbar technology provides a cradling, customized feel that has to be experienced to believe. You need to see and feel the X3 for yourself. Go to xchairtom.com. That's xchairtom.com now to check out the X3's perfect blend of design and ergonomics. A lot of people, you know, checking these out and going for these chairs. Supplies are limited, so don't wait. Order at xchairtom.com. And if you do it now, you get $100 off. That's xchairtom.com. Or you can call them at 1-844-4X-CHAIR. This chair comes with a 30-day, no-questions-asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. That's how good it is. Go to xchairtom.com. Right now, use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get a free footrest. XChairTom.com. Now back to the podcast. Welcome back. It's the Tom Hartman program. On the line with us is Dr. William Reeves. He is a retired emergency medic medic medicine physician, longtime activist around issues of foreign policy, economic justice, and human rights. Traveled to uh, Cuba with me and Code Pink back in February. Uh, uh, William or Barry, uh, what would you yeah. prefer? Prefer I call you? I prefer Barry. Hey, Barry. Uh, so uh, you you are like just very wired into what's going on in Honduras. Can you tell us about that? Um, I've traveled to Honduras three times since 2016, and I guess what I would say is, I think in order to understand Honduras, the most important thing is to understand the role of U.S. foreign policy. Um, so just a brief background, in 2009, a progressive president of Honduras, Mel Zelaya, was deposed in a military coup, and that was during Obama's administration, and that um, coup was basically endorsed or rubber-stamped 
by Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. From 2009 on, um, the government emphasized policies of neoliberalism, uh, privatization of enterprises. Austerity. Um, austerity measures. And um, those changes provoked um, much of the uh, pressure on immigration. That is to say, the conditions in the country deteriorated and have deteriorated ever since the coup in 2009. In 2016, um, I visited Honduras the first time, and that was after the assassination of a woman named Berta Caceres. So she was an internationally famous environmentalist, and her assassination, uh, I think it, it really shocked the country even though they're accustomed to political violence, um, her assassination could probably be um, compared to the assassination, say, of Martin Luther King here. I think the country was stunned that someone of her renown would be assassinated. Um, fast forward to the election, presidential election of 2017, last November, a coalition party... Um, in opposition to the regime, was clearly ahead in the elections. Most observers understand that the, that the, that the liberal candidate would have won the election by at least five percentage points. However, during the course of the election, there were computer glitches that occurred multiple times, and once the computers came back online, somehow the conservative candidate had won the election. So that was in November of 2017, and what happened from that point on were mass protests that occurred throughout the country, um, and this was followed by declarations of martial law, curfews, um, the military arrested, I think, 1,300 people, 30 people were killed in the streets, um, and my most recent visits then have been in April and May of this year to support um, primarily political prisoners who have been uh, incarcerated uh, in the uh, post-election protests that have gone on. So I think it's important when people think about uh, think about immigration and refugees that we realize the impact of our foreign policy. Um, Refugees come to this country for many reasons, economic opportunity, uh, fleeing crime, um, but our foreign policy plays a huge role, and I think that's not always part of the discussion and understanding. Has there been a, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I recall Iran-Contra in the 80s. Has there been a parallel screw-up on our part or, or uh, you know, misplaced loyalties or, or uh, whatever you want to call it? Um, in uh, Guatemala and El Salvador, the other two countries that seem to be uh, uh, sending us large numbers of refugees? Well, I think, you know, the short answer is yes. I, I think that, you know, one of the most interesting uh, speakers uh, that we interviewed on one of my trips was a man named uh, Gerardo Torres Zelaya. He's a member of the Libre Party in Honduras, and he had observations <laughs> that, that went like this, that everyone in Honduras now understands that the U.S. State Department decides who their president will be. And they also understand that they're currently living under a dictatorship. Uh, the U.S. was the first country to uh, certify or accept the election results of the election in November that was clearly fraudulent. Um, so I think when one attempts to understand this, I think in the broadest sense, you would have to think about it as sort of the battle between capitalism and, say, neoliberalism and capitalism's most um, extreme form, a battle between that ideology and socialism. That is to say, a system of economics that 
somehow attempts to look after its own people. Yeah, That's sort of democratic socialism uh, in the current Correct. parlance, not, not Soviet socialism. Correct, correct. And so that's how that battle is played out. And I think that, you know, to the extent that these countries head toward a democratic socialism, they get pushback, and that's primarily um, from the U.S., that's my opinion. That's the opinion of, <laughs> that's the, the opinion of Hondurans on the ground, too, right. who are, um, you know, on the front lines of the, <laughs> they're on the front lines of these battles. Is, is, is there is there hope for a solution in Honduras, or is it going to have to come out of the United States? And and what can people who are who are listening to to this program right now uh, do about this? What can Americans do to to help solve this problem that the United States appears to have, uh, if not created, certainly exacerbated? Right, right. Um, well, there are things that can be done. There's a bill in the House right now. I'll pull it up. I put it down as a link. The, the Berta Caceres Human Rights in Honduras Act is House Bill Number 1299, and that's a bill that would withhold funding for um, the Honduran military and police until certain human rights uh, measures were undertaken. So, you know, that's a concrete thing. That's languished in the House, you know, for a year and a half or so. And um, to get back to your question, I think the Hondurans, you know, in uh, and I particularly noticed this with my last visit in May. I, you know, I think they're somewhat stunned. I, I think the blatantness of the electoral fraud um, has stunned them a bit, and they're trying to regroup and trying to figure out a strategy to move forward. Mm-hmm. Um, so ever since the 2009 coup, you know, they have taken every means through civil society, through organizing, in an attempt through the democratic process to affect change, and they had that change stolen from them in November. So I think in some ways, and you know, it's similar to the way many of us felt when Trump was elected, that there was a period of time when we were all just shocked, and we weren't really sure how to move forward, and I think Honduras is in that state at this time. Yeah. Yeah, it, 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 remarkable. We're talking with Dr. Barry Reeves, a retired uh, e- emergency room physician, longtime activist. Uh, we traveled together to Cuba. Barry, you're, you know, we, we talked a little bit, you know, on the bus and whatnot in, in Cuba about uh, the state of medicine in Cuba. But uh, I'm, I'm curious, you know, as a physician, um, Cuba is kind of internationally famous for being the only country in the world whose major export is doctors. Uh, what 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 was your sense of what the state of the Cuban medical uh, circumstance is, and what can we learn from that for the better or worse? Well, you know, on our trip, we didn't we weren't really exposed um, uh, to any Cuban medical facilities, and um, so I didn't really get any firsthand experience. Um, I mean, the fact that. All people have health care, including dental care, is just stunning to me. And vision. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, everybody, yeah, the, the, literally the street beggars, and there were a few of them, uh, not very many, but there were a few, had perfect teeth. I know, I know. The homeless I people, the, same. The, the, the local schizophrenic, you know. <laughs> I know, Tom, I noticed the same thing, and it's just stunning. So, I mean, you come away wondering, you know, how is it that a country with so few resources and at least do this for their people when, you know, uh, here in our country, uh, you know, the homeless population is increasing and, you know, health care is a nightmare. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it was a remarkable experience. And, and Barry, I'm, I'm glad that we could have uh, got together and, and met on this. And keep us up to date on what's going on on Honduras. The, the door is always open yeah, here for, for you on the program. Okay? Thanks so much. Okay, thanks a lot. Barry Reeves. Uh, uh, a friend, a physician, a good guy, traveled with us to Cuba with Code Pink, uh, doing some really great work down there. Thank you, Barry. We'll be back. Welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you. Bill in Palm Springs, California. Hey, Bill, what's on your mind today? Uh, good morning, Tom. Uh, I'm in my 80th year. I think I'm reasonably well-read and well-informed. And I have to say, listening to your program, there's always something new that I've learned every single day from when I'm able to listen to your program. Well, thank you, Bill. Uh, 
I I wanted to comment on the Supreme Court, but I also wanted to remind people back in in just a day after the Pulse nightclub shooting, Ken Burns gave a commencement address at Stanford University, and he said then that electing Donald Trump to the presidency would be like turning the controls of a 747 over to a kid that just got his learner's permit. Unfortunately, we're the 747. This country is the 747. And I'm just damned afraid we're going to crash with this with this guy at the controls. Oh, I think we're actively uh, crashing right now, Bill. Yeah. And as, as far as the Supreme Court, some of your listeners have already touched on it. I, I think that uh, given Trump's uh, loyalty pledges that he asked people to do, Anybody he selects, I think, is suspect in in terms of giving a loyalty loyalty pledge. And I also think that they should recuse themselves from anything relating to Trump or his administration. Yeah. Uh, Although conservatives it, it, on the court have no history of actually following the guidelines of federal uh, judicial conduct, uh, which would involve that recusal. For example, Scalia going duck hunting with Dick Cheney, and then two weeks later uh, deciding in Cheney's favor in a in a in a in a case, you know, before the Supreme Court. Um, this well, we is, have we have the we have the best damn court and the best damn government money can buy. Yeah. owned owned and bought and paid for by corporate America. Tragically, so that's it's, that's it's, very, a sad, it's a sad day. Yeah, tragically, that's very much the case. Uh, Bill, thank you for the call. It's, uh, happy Fourth. Yeah, thanks. You too. Hopefully, we can turn this country back into something again. Bill, thanks for the call. Thomas uh, or Tomas in Rockford, Illinois. Hey, Tomas, what's up? Uh, can you hear me right? Just fine. Yeah, what's on your mind? Okay, yeah, you know, I, I've been watching, I'm 57 years old, and I grew up watching World War II movies and all that, and I like documentaries, and I've got some documentaries about the rise and fall of Adolf Hitler and uh, uh, the World War II. And I was watching one yesterday, and it, 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 it just astounds me, the parallel between the Nazi Party and this administration. You know, I, For example? I, you, know, uh, uh, you know, Goebbels, I mean, Pence is Goebbels, and Reinhardt, Heydrich, that's uh, obsessive. Well, you know, those are those are kind of charges. But what, Tomas? What example can you offer? I, you know, I'm not disputing what you're saying. I've, I've, you know, drawn these parallels myself. You know, at, at my own peril with regard to Godwin's law. But uh, what did you see in the movie that caused you to go, "Holy cow! That's what's going on here"? Well, I mean, the, the, the what they're doing with immigration and, and, and our rights. Mm-hmm. The vilification of the other, yeah. You know, and and it, and 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 some of your shows, you guys don't want to say parallels between uh, Nazi Party and, and Holocaust, but to me, I see this as the beginning of the same thing. Yeah, it's like that one guy who was saying that they came for the union. That I did nothing. They came for the socialists. I did nothing. I, they came for the communists. I did nothing. When they came for me, nobody was there. Right. And to, to, it, to me, it seems like it sticks to getting to that level where it's going to be an America that, that, that is totally different. I've been seeing changes since Ronald Reagan. You know, this is not the country that was before Ronald Reagan. Yeah, I agree. And Reaganism, Reaganism has not only devastated the middle class, but it's also devastated the rule of law. Reagan himself had the, the most lawless administration. More, more of Reagan's that, senior officials were c- convicted of high crimes and misdemeanors than any other administration in history. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And, and Trump is going to supersede that. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely think so. I agree with you. Tomas, thank you for the call. Well said. Didi in uh, Walnut Creek, California, listening on iHeartRadio. Hey, Didi, what's up? Hey, Tom. Uh, I don't know. Like, I'm just at a loss of words. But today, it seems kind of different. It's like... (sighs) I'm sorry, Tom. Um, I had so much to say. I've been sitting here listening. Mm -hmm. But just... um, Well, it says here you called about corruption in plain sight. Yes, corruption in plain sight. Basically, you have this guy, like, I'm looking at his tweet. He just tweeted out not too long ago, calling the NSA a disgrace and that they lost 625 million emails. But you are, con- you, you run the NSA. Right. You know, it's, it's like it's, it's a disconnect there. It's just like it's okay they're corrupt when they make... When, when well, what he's trying to do is discredit our intelligence agencies because the intelligence agencies are the ones who are, who are ultimately going to offer the evidence to the court of public opinion, which is what Trump's trying to sway in advance. We are all the jurors. Because ultimately, this is going to end up as an impeachment trial in Congress, right? In both the House and then the Senate. 
um, right. you know, assuming it passes the House. He's, he's, try, he's, he's trying to rig the jury, basically, is what's going on, yeah, by, by mean, trashing his own intelligence agencies so that we won't believe it when they come out and say, yeah, the, you know, Trump did this. Right, but the jury's already decided. I mean, Congress is not going to um, impeach him. Well, this Congress is not, but after November, we may have a whole completely different thing. But, but we're not getting to November. That's the thing. Like, that, that's how you have this everyday con uh, chaos. I mean, just can you remember what we were talking about four weeks ago? No. I mean, you can, you can kind of um, mash everything from North Korea all the way to him um, saying, threatening he's going to tear away from NATO and take us out of the World Trade Agreement, all in just today. And then you have him meeting with Putin, un unsupervised, and then you have the GOP going to Russia next week. Yeah. You really think we're going? And then you have the, what was that, the access uh, report coming out this morning. No, I, I got it. Didi, I got to run, but thank you for the call. Uh, spot on. We've got a serious problem with, uh, with President Spanky here. Thanks so much for being with us today. Have a great 4th of July. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us to participate. That includes you. So, you know, getting registered to vote is a great place to start. Tell all your friends about progressive media, too. Tag, you're it. We'll see you right after the 4th. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.